for the January 19, 2024 edition of Weekly Signals Weekly Review. A personal recollection of the last 168 hours of history, broadcasting on Artist as Outlaw Day from the University of California at Irvine on KUCI 88.9 FM. I'm Nathan Callahan. I'm Claudia Shamboff. And as always, the Willie Nelson of public radio, <laughs> Mahler, the deep fake news dog. Mahler. Little chirp today, nothing yeah, much. Yeah. You okay, Mahler? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, okay, I, I guess fine. so. Yeah. Today we'll be talking about illegal sand mining, the blood brain barrier. AI news, a primordial galaxy, weather manipulation, and so much more. But first, from Inverse, the Peregrine Mission 1 spacecraft burned up in Earth's atmosphere yesterday after a 238,000-mile aborted flight to land on the moon. That's a lot of miles to put in just to, just to burn up. fizzle out. Yeah. The return to Earth was based on recommendations from the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, other U.S. government agencies, and members of the space community to prevent Peregrine from becoming a potentially hazardous piece of space debris orbiting the moon or Earth. So that's why they sent it mm. back here to burn up in our atmosphere. Shortly after the mission's launch from Cape Canaveral on January 8, a valve between the spacecraft's oxidizer tank and a tank of high-pressure helium got stuck in the open position, and the mission was scrapped. Wow, that sounds so explosive. It's all you know, gas. It's, in a way, it's nice no one was on board. I, well, there it's the post. Yeah. Peoples. Yeah. The lander carried a rover from Carnegie Mellon University and other privately sponsored research, as well as the ashes and DNA from about 70 people, including Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry and science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke. Ashes to ashes, so they say. Another U.S. company, Intuitive Machines, is up next with its own lunar lander due to launch next month. I wish them better luck. I hope they're not carrying any ashes or remains on board. I think that's uh, bad juju. Oh, that'll well, that'll be an essay. The, only the, the best uh, will pen that essay. Yeah. The uh, Navajo Nation was saying, "Shouldn't be doing this. This is a this is a sacred place, the moon, and we're playing with it." Mucking up. From the Guardian, the world's Five richest men have increased their combined fortune from $405 billion in March 2020 to $869 billion in November 2023, according to Oxfam. A report by the charity highlighted the soaring wealth of Tesla CEO Elon Musk, Moet Hennessy, Louis Vuitton, Boss Bernard Arnault and family, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, Oracle founder Larry Ellison, and veteran investor Warren Buffett. The charity is calling for curbs on corporate power to reduce the gap between the super-rich and the rest of society, including through capping CEO pay and introducing taxes on permanent wealth and excess profits. Sounds pretty good to me. These amounts of money, just tell me that 
there are very few people that are building the terms for the future that we're not even aware of. I'm not saying that in a conspiratorial voice. I'm saying the power of this much capital under so few of individuals, and these are all men, yeah. it's the asymmetry of power in terms of the long-term things that are set in place yeah. that determine the marketplace, the body politics, so many things. It's determinants. It's not conspiracy that I'm looking at. And as my good friend Fran Leibowitz would say, you don't earn that kind of money. You steal that kind of money. Yeah. When you get to a certain degree in the wealth you have coming in, it's not something that you did anything really to deserve or earn or work for. You're just playing off of other people's bad luck or misfortune and your own greed. Have you ever met anybody that works for Elon Musk's firms? I've no. met, I met one person at SpaceX. Oh, yeah. It was a slave shop. They worked their butts off, and it's unrelenting. I don't know what the kind of turnover is, because Elon Musk really burns through labor. So it's, that's part of the steal that Franny Leibowitz is talking about. Stealing their labor. Were they well paid for where they were or were they in an assembly line this person was an engineer he called himself a rocket scientist without being ironic the r&d people are a little less scathed but they're still talent that's getting burned through that's the stealing of the top dogs that yeah. there's burning through all kinds of humans <laughs> oh, oh, oh. if you're one of the world's five richest men may i recommend a donation to KUCI say 10 or 20 million or even more because we deserve it. What would we do with that? You won't even know it's gone. <laughs> Just go to KUCI.org. Your generous donation is how we stay on air. Commercial free, free form, free speech radio, mm -hmm. KUCI 88.9 FM. <laughs> he likes to get that last little yeah. period. Yeah. The it's nice, Mahler. That's yeah. a great little uh, period on the end of that mm -hmm. sentence. From Yale Environment 360. New studies indicate U.S. populations of eastern monarch butterflies are not in decline. Researchers who resequenced the DNA of the butterfly's primary host plant, common milkweed, and analyzed existing monarch DNA concluded that neither the monarchs nor the milkweed have suffered a catastrophic decline in the past 75 years. Their findings contradicted the widely held belief that the butterfly is imperiled due to the eradication of milkweeds by the spread of agriculture using herbicide, glyphosate, and genetically modified crops. A statistical analysis of the National Butterfly Association's massive database also found that the butterfly has suffered no sharp decline across its summer breeding range, as had been the prevailing view, and that the population there has actually increased by some 30% during the past 25 years. Meanwhile, the Xerxes Society, a nonprofit environmental organization that focuses on the conservation of invertebrates considered to be essential to biological diversity and ecosystem health, published a joint statement signed by 10 top monarch biologists warning against the captive rearing and releasing of monarchs by backyard and commercial breeders. These activities, they wrote, promote crowding and disease spread. So people attempted to do that, 
to help with the population. That they but thought it's was actually, dropping, but it's not. Yeah, and but it's actually do, hurting the population. Right. Well, why do you think, though, there was that? And I remember, I felt a little uh, concerned about trends, but why do you think they were so far off? They, I use carefully. Well, I think they changed where they were breeding and where That's they were a, going. It was a shift. Okay, yeah. yeah. Had you ever been to, I think it's Las Osas, uh, up uh, north above... Uh, where is that? San Luis Obispo. I'll no, I haven't. Oh, it's beautiful. I ran into it by accident when I was a young oh. man. I was just walking, hiking around that area, walked through a grove of eucalyptus, looked up in the trees, and there were oh. millions wow. of golden monarch butterflies just spreading their wings and looking happy. Just, wow. uh, well, that's good news, but it could reverse, though, the trend because of yeah, exactly. how much messing around with t- and temperature right. and... yeah. Because there is another community of scientists that are saying, oh, we don't really take this, the studies you've done as seriously as you do, and we'll see how that plays out. It's good news from what I've read over the last several years. Yeah. From Scientific American, sand mining is the world's largest extraction industry because sand is a main ingredient in concrete, and the global construction industry has been soaring for decades. Every year, the world uses up to 50 billion metric tons of sand. The only natural resource more widely consumed is water. We are dredging river sand at rates that far outstrip nature's ability to replace it, so much so that the world could run out of construction-grade sand by 2050. The greatest demand comes from China, which used more cement in three years, 6.6 gigatons from 2011 to 2013, than the U.S. used in the entire 20th century, which was 4.5 gigatons. Sand in riverbeds, lake beds, and shorelines is the best for construction, but scarcity opens the market to less suitable sand from beaches and dunes, much of it scraped illegally and cheaply. For crime syndicates, it's easy money. The environmental impacts are substantial. Dredging rivers destroys estuaries and habitats and exacerbates flooding. Scraping coastal ecosystems churns up vegetation, soil, and seabeds and disrupts marine life. In some countries, illegal mining makes up a large portion of the sand mining, and its environmental impacts are much worse than those of legitimate operators. Questionable mining happens worldwide. In the early 1990s, in San Diego County, California, officials stopped mining from the San Luis Rey River only to see operators move across the border from Baja, California, to plunder riverbeds there. So we got a mafia economy, essentially, working in the sand mining industry, helping to build our cities. Sort of off the radar of most of us, so it yeah. can continue to churn away at that sediment. And some of those, that Chinese uh, cements, they're empty buildings now since oh, they overbuilt. So it's sort of like, wow. Yeah, we have all but, this sand stacked up into the air in the form of concrete, and it's empty, empty monuments. It begs the question about whether any of the let's say, abandoned structures, abandoned pavement, if that can be repurposed, but maybe that starts to lower the quality of it so the market remains high for the illegally mined sand. I got to wonder when the 6th Street Bridge was built in Los Angeles back in the 1920s, that had what they call a cancer. What it was was salt in the sand that they were using to build 
the bridge. Okay. And they had to rebuild that one. Huge expense. It runs from the east side of L.A., Boyle Heights, into the arts district now mm-hmm, in L.A. Mm-hmm. Right. And not only goes over the L.A. River, but goes over the train tracks and a big industrial area from one hillside over to a plateau on the other side. Right. You got to wonder where that sand came from, why it has uh, salt in it, and maybe that it's perhaps illegal nature, or at least not a very well monitored nature. If there had sand in the concrete, all the other bridges, some of them I think built before the Sixth Street Bridge, are uh, still standing. They had more integrity there. Yeah. Okay. Well, I didn't. Know Meanwhile, in Orange County, from yeah. the Orange County Register. Efforts to add sand to the beach in San Clemente have been paused, with the contractor leaving the site following ongoing sand quality issues with the $14 million U.S. Army Corps of Engineers replenishment project. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has agreed to allow the contractor, Manson Construction, to delay the project up to 70 days to ensure that quality sand is dredged for finishing the project. Work is expected to restart in two months with better quality sand. The project's completion is critical to San Clemente's economy, all the tourism there, Mm -hmm. and for protecting local infrastructure, keeping the rest of San Clemente from sliding into the ocean right now, including a key rail corridor that runs along the coast and is vulnerable to the ocean's waves without a sand buffer in place. I went to it. There was a press conference at the Department of Transportation. The feds were here and yeah. the Katrina Foley and the Del Mar mayor. They were all there at San Clemente looking down over where that gap is. And it's one of the busiest corridors in the U.S. I didn't appreciate that. Think of the industrial corridor yeah. that in central L.A. and the ports that are in L.A. and Long Beach. So yeah, it's, it's the busiest port in the United States. Right. So that's that would make sense. Yeah. So, but there are a lot of issues there. But anyway, they're watching it because it keeps needing to be reinforced. It opened, it closed, it opened. I don't know if it's closed or it's open again. And that is one of the finest strips to hop on a train. Oh, yeah. That's beautiful there. There's a strip up near Monterey, too that runs inland through some wetlands. And, and the Vandenberg Strip, that's the Pacific. There's a nice to... curve yep. in the Vandenberg Strip where yep, you yep. can see the tail end of the train or, mm. or, or vice versa. See the front of the train because the train is making that big swooping curve. And you can see the Vandenberg Base yeah. by train that you cannot by car. Yeah. So anyway, that court, Losham, I think is the shorthand, Los Angeles something something. Stay in tune because the main concern is the planning for moving that more inland. It's not just rebuilding all the time. It's gone. So it's that's a huge acquisition project to relocate that inland further. Yeah. Huge. From the Washington Post, the Greenland ice sheet lost 20% more ice than scientists previously thought, posing potential problems for ocean circulation patterns and sea level rise. Now, they shouldn't have put that sea level rise in there. I'll just say for ocean circulation patterns. Mm. The Washington Post got a little bit ahead of themselves. Mm, there. Because later on, they'll explain why, and I'll, I'll okay. get into that. Researchers had previously estimated that the Greenland ice sheet lost about 5,000 gigatons of ice in recent decades, enough to cover Texas in a sheet 26 feet high. That's how much ice we're losing up there in Greenland. A new estimate adds 1,000 gigatons to that period, the equivalent of piling about five more feet of ice on top of that Texas-sized sheet. 
The additional loss comes from an area previously unaccounted for in estimates, ice lost at a glacier's edge where it meets the water. Before the study, estimates primarily considered mass changes in the interior of the ice sheet, which are driven by melting on the surface and glaciers thinning from their base on the ice sheet. Loss from the edges of glaciers won't directly affect sea level rise because they usually sit within deep fjords below sea level. But the freshwater melt could affect ocean really? circulation patterns. The fjords are below sea level. Yeah, that's what they're saying, at least where the glaciers I'm are. Sorry, think where the that. glaciers are, the fjords aren't necessarily, but where the glaciers sit okay. within the fjords oh, got it. are below it. And the uh, ocean circulation patterns, which are just as troubling as mm. having sea level rise, when those patterns change, our whole weather system changes. <laughs> From the New York Times, a lot of people think the blood-brain barrier is a thing that's wrapped around your head, like a turban or a set of headphones. Instead, the barrier is at the ends of major blood vessels that supply the brain. As they enter the head, the vessels branch and divide until at their tips they form narrow capillaries with extremely tight walls. This barrier keeps large molecules out and allows small molecules like glucose and oxygen to get in. The effects of drugs that treat Alzheimer's, cancer, and other illnesses are often limited by this barrier. Such is the case with the recently approved Alzheimer's drug, Aduhelm. Researchers wonder if they can change that by opening the blood-brain barrier for a short time while they deliver the drug. Their experimental method uses highly focused pulses of ultrasound along with tiny gas bubbles to pry the barrier open without destroying this. This is all going inside your uh, head. First, the patients are injected with tiny microbubbles of perfluorocarbon gas. Then pulses of low-frequency ultrasound are focused on the area of the brain to be treated. The ultrasound pulses set up waves in the fluid in brain vessels, and the microbubbles rapidly expand and contract with the waves. This prize opened the vessels without damaging them, providing entree into the brain. When the barrier was opened, 32% more plaque was dissolved. So that's a good break and a good way to look at it's it. It's a good break. Can we break it down, this good break? This is only at one treatment. Aducanumab, you have to administer that. I don't know if it's weekly or monthly. Yeah. So I don't know how many patients are going to be able to afford. afford. First, the aducanumab itself is very expensive. Yeah. Sorry, folks, I can't give the number, but we've covered it here. Josh Grill at UCI Minds talked about that yeah. on my show. Affording the drug, now affording this procedure of getting through the blood-brain barrier is another thing. It's not going to be available to very many people. But the good part that I couldn't find in Gina Colada's New York Times piece about this was whether the benefit is if there's less drug, like less aducanumab, that's uh -huh. less of a hit on your liver, which is what all clinicians are watching when they put people on these drugs because it's, it's really toxic for livers. So it's so the little less is, drug yeah, is it could actually be better that less drug is getting right, through right now because only was it say in this article about twenty percent aducanumab really gets to the brain so you could give less drug and give it more directly into the to the brain tissue yeah. to rid of those plaques but but it, it's like those five guys that have all that capital swirling around that you mentioned in the beginning of the show uh -huh. it's like not that people are going to get to have those ultrasound procedures done no price tag was included in this article or well, question. 
maybe not this year or in our lifetime, but at some point in time, it's nice to know that this is where uh, procedures are going now. We're at that fine of a point where we can consider encroaching the blood-brain barrier. And it might be helpful in the future, the same technology for some other application. But as you brought up, Mike, and you earlier on Weekly Signals is, that blood-brain barrier has been entered into with the, the mini plastics. The nanoplastics yeah. are getting in. Yep. So they're already there setting up the shop, <laughs> adding to the plaque. I'm sure that's plaque. Yeah. Yep. Enticing. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. Visit us on the web at KUCI.org, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash KUCI 88.9, on our Tumblr blog at KUCIRadio.tumblr.com, and on Twitter and Instagram at KUCIFM. That's right. He Mom. likes it. He's, did you, is he, does he always wear his earbuds in between segments? Yeah, he's not listening to us. He's he's got just when he heard that in. guitar lick. <laughs> yeah, gets his lick in. From Steady by Dan Rather, a woman and two children drown in the Rio Grande as they tried to enter the U.S. from Mexico after Texas military officers prevented federal border officials from aiding them. The tragedy happened just days after state authorities from Texas blocked the U.S. Border Patrol from assessing 2.5 miles of the U.S.-Mexico border near Eagle Pass, Texas. Those who died were Victorma de la Sanchez-Ceros, 33, Yorle Ruby, 10, and Jonathan Agustin Briones de la Sancha, 8. Authorities say Victorma's sister... Monica de la Sancha Cerros, 30, and her 10-year-old son were rescued by Mexican soldiers. They suffered hypothermia but survived. The five family members had reportedly formed a human chain to cross the river, but at some point one of the children broke free and the strong river current swept three of them underwater. That's when Mexican authorities requested help from the U.S. Border Patrol, which was denied access to the area by the Texas State Police and National Guard. Smugglers are pushing large groups of migrants to cross the Rio Grande through residential areas and places west of Eagle Pass, outside the river area taken over by Texas. This geographic shift in the flow of migrants creates a new challenge for federal border authorities because... There is no infrastructure in these areas, especially as temperatures dip in the overnight hours. Tensions have been high between the state and federal officials as the Biden administration has challenged the policies of Texas's Republican governor, including the use of razor wire along the border and a new law that makes entering Texas illegally a state crime. In 2022, the most recent year for which records are available, nearly 700 people perished or disappeared trying to come to the United States. The International Organization for Migration says this is the deadliest land route for migrants worldwide. Somehow, and this is really the drive of Dan Rather's article, these faces disappear. We don't think about the people who are losing their lives. It turns into this scuffle between the federal government and the uh, state. He posted the pictures of the two children, and my gosh, that's on our watch. Gone. You're really desperate. You're going in January. You're fording that Rio Rio Grande Grande. River. 
How cold? It's brutality. And when you well, use the word tragedy, I know what a wordsmith you are, and I wonder why you use the word tragedy. I would use the word catastrophe because there's no redeeming development from these children and their mom dead. It's a situation that there, there are so many uh, lines to it. It's not that these people just decided, hey, let's go into the United States and make a lot of money and, and send it to our relatives in Mexico and we'll all live fat and happy. That's not what happens. These people are desperate for them, like you say, to cross the Rio Grande. Uh, During a freeze. They not only want to get to the other side, they need to get to the other side to survive. From the Huffington Post, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau unveiled long-awaited changes to how the nation's biggest banks structure overdraft protection plans. This is very good news, Yep, I think. The independent watchdog agency said the new rule closes a loophole that for decades has exempted overdraft loans from the consumer protections required by the 1968 Truth in Lending Act. Since 2000, American consumers have paid an estimated $280 billion in bank overdraft fees. $280 billion. During that time, the annual revenue big banks derived from overdraft fees soared, helped along by the boom in consumer debit cards tied directly to checking accounts. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau proposed potential fees of $3, $6, $7, or $14 and is seeking feedback from banks and the public on which would be appropriate. For too long, some banks have charged exorbitant overdraft fees, sometimes $30 or more, That often hit the most vulnerable Americans the hardest, all while banks pad their bottom lines. President Joe Biden said in a statement on the new rules, banks call it a service, I call it exploitation. And it is because, you know how things go now, you have a a fee or a charge coming up that is taken out automatically. Then you're not knowing that that even happened to your account often. And it's a matter of hours that you can be charged the 30 bucks. Yep. And if that happens several times, for people who are not as fortunate as we are, that can be debilitating to have to go through that over and over again. You know, the mind wanders out the possibilities and the snark here. We could imagine when you call a bank to resolve this, the phone answering would be, because we can, department, may I help yeah, you? because we can, exactly. You ever notice how when the bank gets the money, it's gone instantly? But when you want money, it takes three or four days. A couple of business days. Mm-hmm. Yep. No. From the New York Times, residents, <laughs> residents as young as 16 have been granted the right to vote in school board elections in Newark, New Jersey's largest city, beginning in April, after the city council unanimously approved an ordinance lowering the voting age. If implemented, the measure would make Newark the largest community in the United States to expand voting rights to younger residents since 1971, when the 26th Amendment lowered the voting age to 18 nationwide. In 2013, Tacoma Park, Maryland, A 17,000-person suburb in Washington became the nation's first city to let 16-year-olds vote in local elections, but Newark is the the biggest city ever. The initiative in Newark, a city 10 miles west of Manhattan, 
where nearly 90% of the residents are black or Latino, is considered a major leap in a nationwide campaign to reinvigorate civics education, encourage greater participation in the democratic process, and boost lagging voter turnout. Last week, only 3.1% of Newark's 195,000 registered voters cast ballots for the nonpartisan election for the city's nine-member school board. Nine members, wow. Yeah, each of the three winners won with fewer than 3,500 votes. Uh, this could have a huge impact. I This just was like an endorphin load for me reading this. The city council approved the resolution after more than two hours of testimony for and against lowering the voting age. Most of the people opposed the new age requirements said students were unprepared to make such crucial decisions and they urged the city to also bolster civics curriculum. Now, the second part is fine, yeah. but not to single out any particular group, but the people who vote for Trump are unprepared to make critical decisions. <laughs> there are plenty of brilliant 16-year-olds out there. They're in the classes. They experience what's going on. I think they're prepared. They've been attending school board meetings because they're the counterforce for the Moms for Liberty that are trying to reach into the library, reach into the curriculum. So it's they're stepping up. So this is just like giving them more agency to determine their arrays. Yep. Yeah. And research has shown that the earlier people begin to vote regularly, yep. the likelier it is that it'll become a lifelong habit. If implemented, Newark would become the largest community in the country to lower the voting age to 16 for school board elections. It's funny, when they lowered the, the age to 18, I'd already passed 18. Oh, so, but so I, kinda... that was my, I was <laughs> yeah. that class of 72. Yeah. That was my first year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, well, I was thrilled. I yeah. was thrilled. Yeah. I did it as soon as I can. The, there yep. was a person who was registering right down the street from me, a few doors down. I walked in, filled out the form, mailed it, and was very pleased with myself. Yeah. Oh, that was exciting. From Inside Radio, Radio News AI, an AI-generated news service developed in the Netherlands, is being shopped to stations in the U.S., including KUCI. In fact, Claudia, you just received a solicitation. Do I have time on the show to break that down a little bit? (laughs) If you want to, yeah. Do you want me to go a little bit on their background? Go go say. The product allows local stations to deliver newscasts using an AI-generated voice based on RSS and website feeds. Radio News AI was founded and developed by Stefan de Groot, who has a background as a radio DJ and producer for Radio 538, what he calls the number one radio station in the Netherlands, it isn't. Yeah, everybody uses that. Yeah. DJs here use that, too. Yeah, we're, we're the greatest station yeah, in the well, history yeah. of the universe. But the group says he has been working on the service for about a month and already has stations using it. I started as an entrepreneur and successfully built several software companies, but I'm always up for side projects. So he wants to screw around with the news as a side project. I don't believe tools like Radio News AI will lead to significant job disruptions or result in job losses. Where's this guy been? I got this email blast from him. He offers this service. You can try it for free yourself by using this link. If you have now, so he concludes his email. If you have any questions or would like to discuss how it can benefit your station, please feel free to contact me. I'm eager to explore its potential with you. Well, 
seeing. So this is my answer, if my if I may do this. Oh, sure. And I said, hello, Stefan DeGroote. <laughs> I have to give you credit for trying. However, I find it really ironic that as my extensive trove of original radio programming is being scraped by AI enterprises without my consent and without my compensation, you then emerge to monetize that taking of my added value to sell me your product. Is it not possible that you would capture my programming before turning over my product back to me for a fee? Isn't that just the most asymmetric thing that you and I could think about? I think I will share that on my media platform. I guess that's right now. I will give Radio News AI a shout out. Uh, That was sent. I sent that on the 12th. So it's a week ago. Yeah. Well, not a. He's got things he's got to do on the side. He's got to do, but I just, you know, like use me and sell it back to me was just beyond, beyond. So I'm thanking you for uh, finding a a slot in Weekly Signals to talk about this. So something tells me you don't like this idea. (laughs) Yeah, I don't like it. No, not one one bit. uh, There are wonderful things that AI can do. And there are also horrible things that AI can do. And we've got to work on the ethical side of this before we just embrace it entirely, especially by Stefan de Groot and his, uh, his, casual. his side deal, his casualness exactly about what's going on. From Cosmos magazine, a galaxy was discovered that, unlike any other known in the modern universe, seems to be essentially devoid of stars. The galaxy, a floating hunk of dust and gas aimlessly adrift in space, Found by mistake in a radio telescope is nearly as massive as the Milky Way, yet invisible to the naked eye. Called J0613 plus 52. Ooh. The, <laughs> the, Let's clear that with the FCC. Yeah. <laughs> the object was discovered and reported by a team at the Green Bank Observatory in West Virginia. During one of the planned observations using the Green Bank Telescope, the researchers realized they were pointing at the wrong point in the sky. But rather than finding nothing at that targeted spot, the telescope detected a galaxy-like blip of hydrogen gas some 270 million light-years distant. Yet in visible observations, there was no object in the area. That curious combination, a hydrogen-rich radio signal but no apparent visible light, Hmm. suggests this galaxy is made almost wholly of gas and dark matter, bearing few, if any, stars. Most interesting of all is that J0613 plus 52 is completely isolated with no neighboring galaxy closer than 330 million light-years or so, our own Milky Way. In fact, it appears to be the object's closest known companion, our galaxy. J0613 plus 52 may have been alone in space since the early universe, existing as a solitary pocket of gas scarcely changed since its formation billions of years ago. So that's a great opportunity for us to see what happened at the Big Bang. A little baseline. Yep. Baseline galaxy. From Nature Magazine, for the first time, a cloned rhesus monkey has lived into adulthood, surviving for more than two years so far. The cloning was achieved using a slightly different approach from the conventional technique that was used to clone Dolly the sheep and other mammals. By replacing the placenta of the cloned embryo with that of embryos produced by an in vitro fertilization technique, 
Scientists reduced development defects that can hinder embryo survival while using fewer embryos and surrogate mothers. And from the Los Angeles Times, California recycling centers will now redeem wine and liquor bottles, as well as pouches, boxes, and cartons for cash as part of the state's beverage container recycling program. Starting this year, anyone purchasing wine or liquor will be charged an additional five cents for bottles less than 24 fluid ounces and 10 cents for larger bottles. The additional charges will offset the California redemption value paid out when these containers are recycled in the state. CalRecycle estimates the expansion will lead to an additional 1.1 billion bottles being recycled in the state annually. And from Business Insider, eBay will pay a $3 million criminal penalty for a harassment campaign of a Massachusetts-based couple who ran a newsletter that was sometimes critical of the company. eBay was charged with six criminal offenses, including stalking, witness tampering, and obstruction of justice after several of the company's employees sent disturbing packages to the home of Ina and David Steiner in 2019, including a bloody pig mask, a fetal pig, live insects, and a funeral wreath. The Steiners, is that that saying that... I don't know. The that, pork that's just product who they were. Is yeah, yeah, wow. According to a Massachusetts Jeez. U.S. Attorney's Office statement, the $3 million settlement is the statutory maximum fine for eBay's charges. And mm-hmm. finally, from Raw Story, a Donald Trump ally who is frequently cited by Trump himself claimed that Nikki Haley can control the weather. Laura Loomer who supports Trump and has even been floated by Donald Trump Jr. as a potential interim press secretary, should Trump Sr. be reelected, posted about her theory on social media. We all know Nikki Haley has a lot of friends in the defense industry and military-industrial complex, Loomer said. She's losing in Iowa, and now Iowa is set to get hit with a once-in-a-decade blizzard as Trump is set to dominate the Iowa caucus. Is the deep state using its high-frequency active auroral research program to rig the Ohio caucus? Looks like weather manipulation to me. It's all these grand jumps all the time and the logic Laura of Loomer, these people. She just doesn't deviate from her lunacy. <laughs> she, this, she's such chaos. Laura Lunar. L- L- yeah, well, no, that obviously, but I, I'm, yeah. In response, Trump's former lawyer, Jenna Ellis, said, I realize it's 2024 and I need to up my game, but I still did not have Haley controlling the weather as an actual defense for Trump performing poorly on my bingo card. Yeah. You can subscribe to the Weekly Signals Weekly Review podcast at weeklysignals.com. Weeklysignals.com. Subscribe now.